Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at And Now the Screaming Starts from 1973. Adapted by Roger Marshall from a novella by David Case, and directed by Roy Ward Baker. Both men were part of the huge flowering of British film and television that occurred during the 1960s, thanks in no small part to the British invasion that hit the musical scene in that era, British culture was seen as hip and happening and now, and kind of the nexus of a lot of social and artistic movements, and companies like Hammer Films and Amicus Productions made bank exporting the kind of costume dramas featuring classically trained actors that were incredibly expensive to make in America, but came cheap and easy to British producers. Most people immediately associate this kind of gothic horror period piece with Hammer because they were such a prolific studio, but Amicus got their time in the sun as well with a number of well-regarded anthology films. But 1973 was right near the end of that golden age of British horror cinema, and everyone was kind of running on fumes. Period pieces were increasingly seen as staid and stuffy compared to the lurid giallo films coming out of Italy and the indie gore flicks being made by Herschel Gordon Lewis and his contemporaries, and efforts to update wound up feeling gimmicky and instantly aged. I think the poster child for this problem was Dracula AD 1972, one of the last Hammer Dracula movies. The one-two punch of The Exorcist and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre would pretty much be the death knell for the genre for quite some time, but we're not quite there yet, and Amicus's American producers Milton Subotsky and Max Rosenberg were still able to craft films that felt posh and gothic, and hammer-esque, honestly, on a very reasonable budget. They even used many of the same actors as Hammer. Peter Cushing, who receives top billing as Dr. Pope despite getting only 28 minutes of screen time according to IMDb, was famous from two cycles of Hammer films, the Frankenstein movies where he played Baron Frankenstein, and the Dracula movies where he played Professor Van Helsing. We've discussed him already in the Horror Express episode, but suffice to say that the death of his wife in 1972 changed him in profound and very sad ways, and you can always tell in his later movies, even though he's never anything less than professional. According to Horrified Magazine, his longtime colleagues attempted to stay out of his eyeline whenever he was performing because if he caught sight of them, it would remind him of happier days, and he'd have difficulty keeping his composure. Herbert Lom, who received second billing for his role as Henry Fenn Griffin despite only appearing in flashback and only getting 11 minutes of screen time, was born in Prague as Herbert Charles Angelo Kachachevich Sholdopacharu, and it's not hard to forgive him for wanting to find the shortest stage name possible after that. I somehow imagine a young Taliesin Jaffe reading that bit of film trivia and coming up with Percival Frederick Stein von Musil-Plasowski de Rollo III almost on the spot. Lon became a huge hit as a character actor, playing over-the-top villains in films from the comedic, he was Inspector Dreyfus in all the Pink Panther movies, to the deadly serious like War and Peace where he plays Napoleon, and the 1962 Phantom of the Opera where he plays the titular Phantom. He's surprisingly restrained here, and I've seen it suggested that he looked at the screenplay and realized it was so gruesome and awful that underplaying it was the only option. But we'll get to that. 
Third build is Patrick McGee, who gets five minutes of screen time as Dr. Whittle. McGee is another actor we've talked about before, having appeared in The Mask of the Red Death as secondary villain Alfredo, but it's worth mentioning again that these films were part of a career that included gloriously schlocky genre fare like Die Monster, Die and the Skull, and legendary dramas like Marat Saad, Barry Lyndon, and at least two adaptations of King Lear. He really was one of those actors who could and would do it all. And getting fourth billing, despite being in just about every scene and carrying the entire film on her back, is Stephanie Beecham as Catherine Fenn Griffin. Beecham is one of those fantastically talented actors who's never been out of work since her debut in the late 60s, popping back and forth between America, where she added a touch of British class to shows like Dynasty and Sequest 2032, and her native England, where she was in the aforementioned Dracula AD 1972, as well as Coronation Street and Noel's House Party. Oh, and she was Maggie Thatcher in an episode of ALF, a sentence I never thought I'd be saying when I started this podcast. Catherine's husband, the inconsistently characterized Charles Fen Griffin, is played by Ian Ogilvie. Ogilvie was still coming into his own as a character actor when this movie was released, although he'd already been working frequently in films like She-Beast and Witchfinder General. But like Beecham, he came into his own as a grace note of British class and American productions in the 80s and 90s, parlaying his appearance in I, Claudius, which is a kind of Rosetta Stone of UK actors who would go on to American fame, featuring Derek Jacobi, John Hurt, Brian Blessed, Patricia Quinn, and Patrick Stewart, into appearances on Walker, Texas Ranger, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., Murder, She Wrote, and Babylon 5. He was also in the movie Death Becomes Her, one of at least three films I know of that started their life cycle as ideas for a Tales from the Crypt movie before the performance of Bordello of Blood scuttled that franchise, but that's for another time. And last but not least, Jeffrey Whitehead plays Silas the Woodsman, who's kind of both the villain and the victim of the piece? Like literally everyone in this movie, Whitehead is a famous character actor that was the business model for Amicus and its fellow British studios, get cheap and classically trained character actors and count on the production values to get people into theaters. For a long time, he was probably best known either as Ronnie Bartlett in the TV series The Foundation, or Sherlock Holmes in a 1979 television adaptation of the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle stories, but he's never stopped working, and in fact he's currently a regular on the British show Not Going Out. Oh, and he did some audio work for Big Finish and their Doctor Who spin-offs, although in a movie made by Amicus and starring Peter Cushing, it's hard for anyone else to top that for a Whovian connection. To clarify, because I had to dig up an old article from Scream Magazine to get the details, yes, Doctor Who and the Daleks and its sequel, Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD, are both Aru films according to their credits but they were actually Aru-slash-Amicus co-productions, with Aru providing the financing and Amicus providing the actual expertise, so most sources list them as Amicus films even though they're not credited as such. This has been your pointless Doctor Who digression for the episode. Which would lead us to the actual movie, but before we begin, a brief trigger warning. And Now the Screaming Starts contains multiple depictions of rape and sexual assault, and unfortunately we're going to need to discuss them because they're hugely problematic both in their presentation and their function in the story. If you're not up for this, you might want to stop here until you feel like you're ready to handle those conversations, and as always, you can dial 988 to get in touch with a round-the-clock crisis lifeline if you're experiencing severe and immediate mental health issues. And with that covered, we can begin the film and the discussion.
It starts with a carriage traveling through a marshy forest in the year 1795, according to a voiceover from Catherine Fenn Griffin, and honestly, I think we really could have used a lot more of that voiceover because this is a movie and a character that don't really give voice to a lot of motivations, and as a result, everything starts to feel very arbitrary and plot-driven after a while. I know voiceovers can be hokey, but the idea of treating this as Catherine's journal and interspersing what we see with what she felt would have at least felt like an integral part of the narrative. Instead, she just says, yep, the last day I was happy was when I arrived at Fen Griffin, and clams up pretty tight for the rest of the film. The novella, according to the reviews I've seen, actually starts much earlier and covers Catherine's life leading up to her decision to marry Charles, and is a much more character-driven piece as a result. Apparently, many of the cast members were under the impression the movie was going to be released under the title Fen Griffin, and were a little disappointed by Sabatsky and Rosenberg's decision to give it such a lurid name. Arriving at the centuries-old manor, Catherine playfully asks if it's haunted, and Charles responds with what may be the film's best line, Ghosts galore. Headless horsemen, horseless headsmen, everything. I feel like I might be damning the film's dialogue with faint praise here, but I do like that joke. Charles then shows her a gallery of family portraits, and inevitably she's drawn to one in particular, Charles's grandfather, Sir Henry Fen Griffin, and of course she locks gazes with the eyes of the portrait, helpless to look away, suggesting some kind of sinister and supernatural connection with the dead man, and there's even a reasonably effective jump scare as a bloody hand shoots out of the portrait in what turns out to be a hallucination. But I gotta say, it feels very rote and predictable already. But as I mentioned at the top of the episode, this was a genre and an industry that was running on fumes. The tropes of the gothic had been played and replayed so many times by Hammer, Amicus, and other smaller studios that by this point any virginal bride-to-be coming to a wealthy country estate was bound to wind up entangled in a family secret and a family curse, and there was just no way to make these tropes feel fresh and original, and honestly, not a lot of will to try by this point. Baker does his best with the direction, which is fluid and graceful, but Subotsky and Rosenberg were locked into a formula by this point in their corporate history, and they didn't even know how to reinvent themselves for an audience who is growing weary of yet another variation on Rebecca. Catherine shakes off her vision, and in the next scene, she and Charles are married and seeing off their wedding guests. And on second viewing, it hits me that the reason Catherine's chaperone seems to come out of nowhere in the second act is because we don't see her when Catherine and Charles are wandering through the portrait gallery together, which seems like kind of an important thing for a chaperone to deal with. The two head up to their bedroom together, but they don't see a disembodied hand creeping along the floor to get to them. It's practical, a neat little mechanical trick that actually does crawl across the floor, although at the rate it's going, Catherine's kid would probably be walking along with her by the time it caught up to them. Charles sets Catherine on the bed and goes off to another room to change, which makes no sense at all, but does fulfill the necessary plot contrivance of leaving Catherine alone in the bedroom so she can be assailed by supernatural occurrences. It starts small, with the window opening itself, but then the door locks itself as well, and she's assaulted in her bed by a one-handed spectral figure. Charles breaks into the room with an axe, but the mysterious attacker has vanished, leaving Catherine sobbing and shaken. I'd like to say this is portrayed tastefully, but in fact, the ambiguity of what turns out to be a rape scene is mainly there so that it can be presented to us as a shocking reveal in the third act. It's the beginning of what I feel is an extremely gross and misogynistic undertone to the entire movie. 
Sometime later, Charles goes to his lawyer, Maitland, played by Guy Rolfe, and changes his will so that his wife and any children she might have inherit the estate in the event of his death. Or, you know, in the event that he has a mental breakdown and shoots one of the servants and winds up in prison for life, which seems like an oddly specific clause, but you never know when it might come up. I kid, of course, but they do lay on the foreshadowing a little thick in this scene. Maitland gives him an odd, skeptical look, which makes a lot more sense on second viewing when you understand why Charles might not want to leave the estate to his wife's firstborn son, but does as he's told. And that evening, Charles and Catherine make love for the first time, even though you'd think the appearance of a hovering specter outside their second-story window might break the mood just a little. It's worth describing the specter in detail. It's a man with long gray hair and bloody, empty sockets where his eyes should be, with a port wine birthmark covering his right cheek all the way up to the temple, and a network of scars on his left cheek. We don't see it in this scene, but he also has a missing right hand, which is unfortunately done with a very unconvincing appliance that he often holds at a different angle from the rest of his arm. When Catherine emerges from her room the next morning, she's once again drawn to the portrait of Sir Henry, and this time she sees the specter emerging from it with the stump of his right hand dripping blood. Which feels significantly less terrifying than being sexually assaulted in your bed by that same specter. I think that sums up the pacing problems of this movie in a nutshell. Its central conceit requires the story to begin with a rape scene at the hands of the movie's ghost, and after that, all of the attempts to provide spooky chills and threadbare gothic atmosphere kind of fall flat by comparison. So many of the shock moments that might land well in another movie here just feel weird and out of place. Catherine flees the spectre, coming upon the world's cutest, weeest cemetery. It's the Fen Griffin family plot, which is maybe 20 feet by 40 feet, with an 8 foot high wrought iron fence around the whole thing and 13 or 14 graves already placed. I mean, I'm no expert on this, but it kind of feels like putting this huge imposing fence on this incredibly tiny plot of land really limits the amount of ancestors you're going to be able to bury before they're all lying on top of each other. And the height of the fence makes the plot seem even smaller by comparison. Honestly, the whole deal looks like it comes from a haunted hayride or something. When she goes inside, she finds Sir Henry's tomb, and standing up from behind it, a living man who's a spitting image of the ghost she's been seeing apart from the lack of age and injuries. It is never explained what he's doing sitting behind Sir Henry's tomb, apart from waiting for Catherine to show up so he can give her a good scare. I feel like this could have been done a bit more organically. Catherine flees back to the house and demands to know who he is and what he's doing on the estate. Charles gives a vague answer, explaining that he's the local woodsman, but he's not a servant. Catherine goes back out, past the two large barking mastiffs whose only job is to provide a pointless scare sequence later, and heads to the woodsman's hovel to introduce herself and allay her earlier fears. I feel like another reason the film seems to be oddly paced are the sheer number of location changes and long, slow tracking shots through the local scenery in the lush, sumptuous manner sets. If these people lived in a bungalow, the film would only be 40 minutes long. She finds the woodsman, who introduces himself as Silas, son of Silas, while washing his hands in a barrel, and there's a moment of tension when she asks him to lift his hands from the soapy water and we all prepare to see a bloody stump like in her vision. 
Silas is sarcastic and condescending, lording some private knowledge over Catherine throughout the conversation, and there's a weird sexual tension between the two characters that might have been the seed of a very different and significantly less awful version of this story, but that honestly comes off as incredibly uncomfortable once you know the truth about Silas and his father and Sir Henry Fen Griffin. Basically, it's pretty clear on rewatching that Silas knows his dad's ghost raped and impregnated Catherine, and he's enjoying her discomfort at seeing him. And that's just super gross, given that the film tries to portray all this as a long-overdue and justly deserved comeuppance for all concerned. That evening, Catherine asks Charles about Sir Henry and the reasons he gave Silas and his family the land his hovel is sitting on, and he professes ignorance. I admit, I'm completely bewildered by Charles as a character. It seems like he doesn't believe the story of the family curse, and certainly his decision to bring his fiancée to Fen Griffin for their honeymoon only makes sense if you assume he doesn't, and yet he avoids telling her the truth about what happened as if he's genuinely concerned about evoking supernatural vengeance. I suppose he could just be protective of his family's reputation, but given that almost everyone in the movie but Catherine knows what happened, I can't imagine who he's protecting it from. We then see Catherine going to Maitland and begging him to tell her what happened, so that's another very rapid time jump, and he tells her he'll speak to her husband to see what he's at liberty to reveal. He heads out to the Fen Griffin Estates that evening and gets killed by a spectral woodsman with an axe in what should be a massive escalation of events, but again, the film seems to be progressing out of order in terms of its rising tension. Charles finds the body while Catherine is once again menaced by a window that opens itself. Okay, so technically there's a bit more to the shock than that, but placing this after the murder really diminishes its impact. Dr. Whittle comes to examine Catherine after her shock, and he discovers that she's pregnant. So either he's a spectacular physician, or we've had even more time skips than it seems. The doctor insists that Charles needs to tell her about the family curse, but Charles, who's becoming more Benedict Cumberbatchy with every scene, refuses. Predictably, the police question Silas, but they've got no evidence, and he maintains his steadfast denial. Catherine, meanwhile, has taken to sitting in her room and moping, openly admitting she doesn't want her baby and asking virtually everyone she speaks to why that doesn't come as a surprise to them. Her pleas touch the heart of Mrs. Luke, her maid, played by Rosalie Crutchley, who sneaks down to the library to get a book that shows the Fen Griffin family tree. But on her way back to Catherine's room, supernatural forces assail her until she goes tumbling down the stairs, sustaining fatal injuries in the fall, but leaving the book for Catherine to find. A word of advice for anyone who does watch this, there's a weird freeze frame on her corpse that looks for all the world like your screen just froze. It's not a problem with your disc, it's a stylistic device, I promise. The clue Mrs. Luke left behind, though, is extremely weird. It appears to indicate a scratched-out offspring of Sir Henry Fen Griffin, which would seem to be a reference to the stillborn child Sarah, Silas's wife, had after Sir Henry raped her. But would this really be something they put in the family tree and then rubbed out later? I suppose it's possible that one of Sir Henry's enemies put it there as a mocking reference to his crime, but as clues go, it's pretty opaque, and it's certainly not something that's going to help Catherine solve her mystery. I feel like it's another example of the film not really knowing what to do between the inciting incident and the big conclusion. 
Speaking of which, Catherine's Aunt Edith, who's played by Gillian Lind and who's had maybe a single line of dialogue to this point in the movie, has decided that she's had enough of her niece's bullshit marriage to her bullshit husband and it's time for the two of them to pack up and go. This is a huge decision that comes completely out of nowhere and that Catherine might rightly want to have a say in, but it's all completely irrelevant because it's just an excuse to show that anyone trying to remove Catherine from the Fen Griffin estate is going to get it quick and nasty. Edith is strangled by a spectral hand and collapses dead right in front of Catherine. Charles tries to play off the third death in a few months as no big deal, but he also goes to Silas and offers to bribe him off the estate for good. Silas is deceptively mild about it all, and I'll admit, I love the way Whitehead plays the part with a meekness so ostentatious it loops back around to disrespect, but he refuses to go. He tells Charles they both know why he needs to stay. And it's about here that all this talking around the big third act reveal goes from intriguing to annoying for me, but your mileage may vary. That night, Charles wanders the halls by candlelight for a frankly interminable amount of time. Baker does his best, but now that we're on our third supernatural murder, I really feel like the time is past to create spooky atmosphere with shadows and gothic architecture, while Catherine sleepwalks over to Sir Henry's portrait and slashes it to ribbons with a knife. The film tries to portray this as some kind of big psychological breaking point, but I honestly can't tell the difference between Catherine before this incident and Catherine afterward. It has to be said, for all that the film requires a lot of histrionics from Beecham, it really doesn't give her a lot to do. She's just constantly distressed, with no other notes to give the role any complexity. And the next day, she's wandering the grounds again, like nothing happened. Oh sure, it's an excuse for one of the dogs to get off the leash and attack her, in a scene that doesn't make any sense in hindsight, since we're eventually told that the supernatural forces surrounding the estate are there to protect her, and that doesn't explain why the dog would attack her or why it has any success given that the ghost can strangle people dead or murder them with spectral axes. But she just gets an unconvincing bit of dog bite makeup on her arm before the younger Silas saves her. The doctor gives her a tonic for it, and she throws it in the river only to find it back on her bedside table when she returns, but after the third supernatural vengeance murder, I kind of feel like that didn't hit as hard as maybe it should. Dr. Whittle responds to Catherine's increasingly fragile psychological state, again supposedly, by sending for Dr. Pope, a specialist in the new science of psychology who may be able to treat her mental illness. I was all set to castigate this as an anachronism, until I looked it up and found that according to the American Journal of Psychiatry, no, this is about right for the timeline. You learn something new every day, I guess. Pope arrives and immediately suspects something fishy is going on when Charles is all, Oh yes, my wife is very upset about something, but I absolutely cannot mention a single thing that might lead to this kind of condition in any way, shape, or form, and I'm obviously shifty as hell to boot. I really enjoy the way Cushing makes good use of the sets and the environment in his physical performance to suggest that he's constantly taking in tiny little details that people don't expect him to notice. Like the empty space where the portrait of Sir Henry used to be, or the recently resharpened knife. He asks a few questions of Bridget, the replacement maid, played by Janet Key, who is unsurprisingly reticent to say much given what happened to the previous servant who displayed a bit of loose lips, and then goes up to see Catherine herself. The two of them talk, with Pope winning her over through the simple expedient of actually listening to her and treating her like a human being, and although she doesn't explicitly tell him she was raped on her wedding night, her reaction makes it pretty clear what happened. Sometime later, 
possibly months, given that the movie ends with the birth of her son and she's barely even showing, Pope finds Catherine reading in the library. And from the dust on the books and the crack in the spine, he's able to deduce not just which tome she put back, but which page she was on. It's the Malleus Maleficarum, an infamous text on witchcraft from the 1400s that was used as a justification for burning suspected witches at the stake. I was greatly pleased to discover in my research for this episode that in fact its author Heinrich Kramer was seen as a senile old crank at the time, and the church condemned the book's procedures for witch hunting as unethical and illegal. And Catherine's been reading up on sex with spirits. You're going to be shocked here. But the book's position is that women are responsible for inciting lust in men. Pope goes to Whittle at his office, which has one of my favorite things, a taxidermied alligator hanging from the ceiling to indicate that, yes, this is a man of great learning, and you can look up Apothecary Alligator on TV Tropes to find a host of other examples. And Whittle denies the existence of any local legends about Fen Griffin so vehemently that Pope immediately knows there must be some. He tries to persuade Whittle to tell him the truth, but wouldn't you know it, the moment Whittle gets out, there's a woodsman on the Fen Griffin estate. He instantly drops dead. That is one hell of an efficient ghost. Pope then goes to visit said woodsman, and Silas tells him that if the baby doesn't survive, then Silas will hold Pope personally responsible on pain of death. Pope takes all of this information back to Charles, which finally gets us to the flashback we all knew was coming, the dreadful crime Sir Henry committed that's resulted in a curse on the family. It is a lengthy flashback, but it can be summed up pretty quickly. Sir Henry was a debauched and lecherous creep who held at wild parties on the Fen Griffin estate. One night, during a particular drunken revel, a guest reminded him that Silas the Woodsman had gotten married that day, and he decided to resurrect the apocryphal rite of Prima Nocta, or Drot de Seigneur, and sleep with the bride before Silas. This isn't a real thing, but it's used so often in fiction that a lot of people have become convinced that it did exist at some point in the distant past when lords held absolute and unchallenged power over their subjects. Not that it matters in this case, because Sir Henry referred to it very specifically as a ritual he wanted to bring back for one night only. Sir Henry raped Sarah, Silas's wife, and when Silas tried to attack him afterwards, Sir Henry cut off his right hand as punishment. It's all shown in an ugly, graphic, and exploitative sequence, even though there's no actual nudity, and the way actor Sally Harrison screams in genuine anguish is truly awful. I will say that the scene is intended to be genuinely awful, but given that the rest of the movie is all about silly gothic chills and thrills, going this dark in the flashback really kills any chance of enjoying the film as a whole. It's frankly an instant deal-breaker for me, especially because they could have had Sir Henry cut Silas's hand off for stopping the rape, rather than avenging it. Silas cursed the Fengriffin family line, warning them that the next virgin bride taken by a Fengriffin would be raped in turn and her child would end their lineage, which was a pretty impressive speech for someone who just had their hand cut off without benefit of a tourniquet or cauterization to stop the blood loss. And if the rape scene was a deal-breaker, the idea that Silas's revenge on Sir Henry is going to be to rape a random woman who never did him any harm just because she happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that the real punishment is not on her for having to live with the post-traumatic stress of being sexually assaulted, but on Charles for having to know that he's just been quote-unquote cucked, is just gross on a level that makes me want to frisbee the DVD across the room. It's just an awful, misogynistic view of women as property that a man suffers from being deprived of, 
And I feel like it's just a huge, huge unforced error for this movie. And I could see a slightly better version of this. If the curse was that Catherine and Silas wound up falling in love, aided by some supernatural agency that kept pushing them together, and the relationship was at least consensual, then there'd be something a little less gross about it all, even if it's still not a great play. But by turning Catherine's rape into nothing more than a mechanism to make Charles feel bad, it really tips the revenge plot on its side into a ditch. Back in the present, Charles explains that Henry was stricken with remorse for his actions, and told Silas and his son, who was born 20 years later to Sarah and Silas after the offspring of Henry and Sarah was stillborn, that they could have their land free and clear as an atonement for his crimes. But obviously that's not enough once supernatural vengeance gets involved, and so the younger Silas has spent his entire life waiting for some Fengriffin to be dumb enough to bring a virgin bride back to the estate all of which Catherine overhears from just outside the study, causing her to go and get a knife from the kitchen and try to plunge it into her own stomach to induce a miscarriage. But when she looks down, she sees that the spectral hand has intercepted the blade, and she knows there's no escaping the family curse. Dr. Pope tries to persuade Catherine that it's all in her head, and she's only living in fear of an old superstition, but she points out to him that she never heard of any of this until after she was raped by the ghost of old Silas. He tries to prove to her that he couldn't be true because if it was, the curse would have stricken Charles's mother, but it turns out that she was a widow when she met Charles's father. And at that point, since we're pretty much out of plot, we just fast forward to the due date with Catherine already in labor. It's weird because there's a whole expected track to these things with Pope coming to believe that the legend is true after all, and schooling himself on the supernatural and doing battle with the ghost in some sort of banishment or exorcism ritual, but this movie just doesn't have time for it, so nope, baby day. Everyone fails Catherine completely and she's forced to bring her rapist child to term, and wow does that hit differently in 2024 than it did even when I first started this podcast. She asks Pope to promise to show her the baby before she shows Charles, and he says he will and then drugs her into unconsciousness before letting Charles right on in to see his newborn son, so maybe he bears just a tiny bit of responsibility for what happens next. We don't see what Charles sees in the bassinet, even though anyone with an ounce of intelligence already has a pretty good guess, but it's enough to send him back to his study for a pair of pistols. He loads them up and runs to Silas's hovel, shooting the woodsman once in each eye. So the bloody sockets were from the son, and the bloody stump from the father. An interesting little touch that I wish we could have explored further. Before going to the cemetery, exhuming his grandfather's corpse by breaking open the lid of the crypt with Silas's axe, despite Pope's best efforts to stop him, and smashing the skeleton of Sir Henry against the stones again and again in a petulant fit of rage that comes off as more whiny than grandiose. With no other options, Pope tells the servants to hunt and capture Charles to stand trial for murder, and then hands the baby over to Catherine to care for. It takes them way too long to show this, but obviously he's got the same birthmark as both old and young Silas, even though birthmarks like that aren't hereditary, and his right hand is missing, which definitely isn't hereditary, but obviously ghost DNA just works differently. Catherine's face is horrified as she tries to hand him right back, and I suppose we can be glad that psychology's been invented because this kid is going to need a lifetime of therapy to cope with the way his parents are going to treat him. 
The film closes with a quote from the Bible about the sins of the father being visited unto the third generation, which again doesn't take into account that Catherine's only contribution to all this was meeting a nice young man and agreeing to marry him, and then the film blessedly, thankfully ends. And will I hang on to this movie? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious by now, but no. The way the movie supposedly centers a female protagonist, while treating her effectively as a disposable possession to be victimized and sexually assaulted solely to cause pain to some random dude, is utterly gross and contemptible, and makes it impossible to enjoy any spooky atmosphere the film might otherwise have generated. Which honestly isn't much because of the weird pacing and the sparse plot and the dependence on long, slow tracking shots down ornate hallways, but even if this would only have managed to be mediocre, it can't even reach that when I just feel bad about myself watching this. It's going back on the shelf at the store, and this episode is about the closest I feel like anyone needs to come to watching the film. And if you want to talk about women in refrigerators, the flaws in Doctor Who and the Daleks, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Order, Freddy's come for us, we've shut the door, now it's time to start getting out our crucifix as we enter the final act of the Dream Powers trilogy of nightmare movies, A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. See you then. <laughs>